0: Welcome to the Your Oxygen Mask First podcast. I'm Aaron Young, and this is a space where we explore ways to help the helpers. Because you can't help anyone before you help yourself. So sit back, put your own oxygen mask on, and enjoy the ride. The word resilience is popping up more and more these days, especially when talking about the mental health of first responders and our helpers. And if you're a regular listener, you know that we talk about this on the show quite a bit. But although the word gets thrown around a lot, what does it really mean? And how can we truly apply it to make our lives better? I am so honored today to be joined by Dr. Stephanie Kahn. Stephanie knows firsthand what we go through because she has been a child of law enforcement, a dispatcher, a police officer, a licensed mental health clinician, and now an author who's making it her mission to help us cope with the daily struggles that those of us in these professions face. She has written a book called Increasing Resilience in Police and Emergency Personnel Strengthening Your Mental Armor. And I'm excited for her to share her knowledge and wisdom with us today. Thank you so much for being here, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. It's quite a pleasure to speak on this topic. So, tell us briefly about you and your background. Um, As you mentioned,
1: I grew up in a police household. My dad was an officer for almost 40 years, half of which he was a police chief. So I'm well aware of the operational stressors as well as the political stressors that some administrators have to deal with. And then I became a dispatcher and uh, did that for a few years, went to the other side of the radio and became an officer. I was an officer for Fort Worth Police uh, in Texas. And uh, while I was there, I worked from patrol, uh, worked in the gang unit, became a training coordinator and was part of the system critical incident stress management peer support team. We had had a a couple of officers killed in the line of duty about a year, pretty close to a year apart. And I saw grieving uh, fellow officers. I saw, in addition to, to those critical incidences, I saw other instances where I was being asked to do training on recreation. And I thought, well, this is very bizarre that I'm teaching cops how to have recreation in their lives. And I'm telling them about parks in the area they've never heard of. And I started thinking, what in the world is going on that these people are not in their lives or doing things for enjoyment outside of their work? So I had one of the my fellow officers that was killed in the line of duty. And uh, there was a number of people that tried to talk with me afterwards, but wanted me to go beyond being a peer supporter uh, to actually more of a mental health support person to the degree I wasn't capable so I decided to uh, fill that gap because I saw a gap in that particular service and got my counseling degree so that I could start uh, supporting first responders and so I'd extend it well beyond police to to include others you know corrections uh, EMS dispatch fire etc because there's there's not a uh, there's not enough people that are culturally competent to support these people. So that's how I, I came to, to be doing what I'm doing. I never wanted to leave policing, but it was a choice where I, I could not do both because of schedules and those kinds of things. And so I had to make the leap towards finding that I could be more effective as a clinician supporting cops than, than being a cop uh,
0: myself. Oh, That is absolutely incredible. What a full experience that you have had throughout your career. And um, I'm sorry for the loss of your friends. That's got to be devastating, and it's something that it's becoming more and more prevalent in in our social and our our world these days. So yeah, yeah. Let's talk about a little bit how your book came to fruition. How would that happen? Well,
1: um, it's interesting because I was writing a mental health column for a police magazine called Blue Line, and so every month I would write a one pager about you know getting better sleep or dealing with trauma or improving communications with your family and when i finished my phd i had done i had done three research studies between my masters degree as a paid researcher for the rcmp and then as doing my doctorate and so in between the research that i was doing and the columns that i was writing i kept coming in contact with a lot of first responders who had a lot to say about their well-being and what helped them and what hindered them from doing those kinds of things that they needed to do. And every time I wrote a column or wrote an article in relation to some of these challenges that people were facing, I would get a lot of people who would email me privately because my, my email's at the bottom of the column saying, this resonated with me. Who, Where can I get help? What can I do about that? I wish that I had known this um, sooner. I even had a, a police sergeant walk up to me when I was working. I did victim service work for three years also, uh, which is not usually mentioned in many places. And uh, he walked up to me at the, the police station one day and and because he recognized me from my column and said, I wish that I had known the things you're talking about when I started this career. I wish there was something that was there that we could kind of go to. And so I thought, you know, why not put all of this in a place where I can share it with officers I will never meet, first responders I will never meet, who may or may not ever uh, step foot in a, a clinician's office or who wouldn't think that they would until I gave them some information that might, that one, is usable if they just never, still never went to to get, get support. And then two, if uh, would actually make it less scary to go see a culturally competent clinician if if the, the need was there for it and so it was something that I felt really needed to be out there and there are resources out there but I really wanted something that had that didn't just talk about the problems but really gave a lot of the strategies and shared a lot of the wisdom that I learned from from the people I interviewed in my three research studies as well as, just the people that I was sitting with day in, day out. And, and the one thing I didn't mention about my background is I'm also married to an officer. And so I have it. Uh, I have multiple lenses that a lot of people don't have. And I didn't do it on purpose, but it, it does allow me to speak to dispatchers, does allow me to speak to police wives or spou- other spouses. And that's, that's why that's how the book came to be is, is I just wanted to give people something that they could hold on to and, and refer to as needed.
0: And I was lucky enough to get my hands on an excerpt of your book. Mm -hmm. I am going to buy it, by the way, because (laughs) just from the little that I did get to read, I highly enjoyed it. It was very conversational. But like you said, it identified the problems, but also gave solutions, which a lot of resources that have been given to us first responders or helpers, they're really good about saying you need to get more sleep and this is what happens when you don't sleep or this is your reaction to trauma, but it doesn't tell us how to apply it in our normal everyday lives, which you go the extra mile and actually do in this book, which is very impressive.
1: Yeah. And I, thank you. And I think the other thing that, you know, and again, I, I think there's many uh, gifts given by many of the books that are out there. But again, there are some that, that I have seen or others have told me about that they're just storytelling. And I'm I'm fine with telling stories if the story illustrates what does it look like to be to be resilient? What does it look like um, to struggle? And and then what does it look like? What were the steps that you used to change? And so I've read some and I'm like, okay, that's storytelling for the sake of storytelling. And I don't know that first responders benefit as much from just reading about a story of someone's struggle, if they don't learn how, like what to take away from it. So I, I just really wanted to be very and I, I it was a very painful process honestly to write the book it took me 2 years because I wanted it to be exactly what I wanted it to be which was if I tell a story there's a point uh, there's something to to be taken from it and if I give research I'm not speaking of it in a way that sounds like a university lecture that puts everyone to sleep except the person speaking so it it was
0: it was a very difficult process of of creating exactly what I wanted it to be but I'm happy with the response I'm getting from folks. So you said the magic R word to me, which is resilience. And it's a huge buzzword in the mental health field right now. And also in the first responder world, because we are identifying that mental health is important and we're talking about it more, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about what is resilience and how can we apply it really in our lives every day and in our work? I love talking about the concept of of resilience,
1: and I love and I do it often when I'm doing trainings. and And in my mind, I liken resilience to officer safety, and and I think even people that are firefighters and EMS and dispatch and such can relate uh, to to just kind of their own uh, thoughts about taking safe practices when they come into work. And so, in my mind, when you go to the scene of something you have to make assessments. You have to think in advance before you get there, what you're going to be facing, what your risk factors are, what your protective factors are, who you need, what you need to do. And then when you get there, you're making an assessment at that time as to what it is that needs to happen, who's the threat, uh, what what adjustments do you need to be making to make yourself safe. And so it's a series of assessments and, and interpretations and decisions and actions, actions being the adjustments that you make. And so if you show up on a scene and you just dis- determine that someone is unsafe, you're going to make an adjustment. If you determine if you're unsafe, you're going to make an adjustment. And resilience is the same thing when you practically apply it across your life. You've got to assess what are the things that are stressing you? What are the things that are traumatizing you? What are the things that are challenging for you? And you've got to really be aware. You've got to assess that on some level, you know, just even if it's just like thinking about your day or your week. And then you've got to make adjustments. You've got to say, well, what do I need to do to be less grumpy today? What do I got to do to be more motivated in my uh, work? What do I got to do to be more connected in my relationship? What are the things that are taking away from that? What are the things that are contributing to that? And who are the people that, who who do I need as an assist in this? (laughs) And that could be their their uh coworkers it could be their significant other it could be an administrator a pastor a chaplain a clinician whatever and so it's you know what kind of assist do you need in this world and so it's really about being a process uh, at about a series of dis- uh, of assessments decisions based upon those assessments and actions based upon those uh, decisions and and, and assessments. And so it's really a very ongoing process. No one achieves resilience. It isn't a character trait you have or don't have, but rather something you commit to every day. Every time you you go to that call, even if that call is that call in life, which is you're going to your in-law's house. (laughs)
0: So there is not a one-size-fits-all prescription for resilience is what I'm hearing from you.
1: No, there isn't. I think for each person, it depends on what they assess. It depends on what their life is. It depends because even... Even for me, one week, a resilient practice might mean that I prioritize more sleep. And another week, it might mean that I don't need more sleep. I need more people in my life, like support type people. And so I think it, it, it evolves. It is a process and processes evolve. It's not a state to be achieved.
0: That should be a quote on the wall. <laughs> I want to I put that on the wall at my
1: center. Yeah. Well, but the thing is, is that it, for for even for saying that, we also know, and I say, when I say we, I typically mean people in psychology, mental health, that there are key components of resilience. And when I go and talk to people and I say, okay, your health, meaning your physical health, your emotional health, your spiritual health, your um, those kinds of things, your mindset. So the way you think about things, positive, negative, neutral, uh, in a closed skeptical, or excuse me, cynical way versus a skeptical way. And then in your relationships of all kinds. And so those are three things that I would say are key factors in having a resilience plan that, um, again, uh, no exact formula, but some formulation of things that you're doing in those three domains of your life are going to promote your resilience or going to take away from your resilience.
0: So what are some of the challenges a person in a first responder or a helper type role face in the terms of mental health and maybe stigma around it? I think there's a lot of things. It's both the just it's the awareness of what's available to them for help.
1: It is understanding how that stuff might those people or services might help. And it is a mind shift from only those that are not making it, or those that are weak, or not cut out for the job, are the ones that ask for support or help. When in reality, we know it isn't the it isn't the strongest that survive. It is those that are most willing to adapt, and that's a that's a Darwin quote, and that's that's the reality of it. It is it isn't that someone who asks for help or who makes adjustments to uh, their resilience plan or gets something else going in terms of reprioritizing, you know, what they're doing, putting health and family over work, that kind of stuff. It, it, it's, it's a mind shift that they have to create that that is normal and common, that that is uh, how we survive. But then even, even still. There are a lot of myths around what mental health clinicians are and what they do. And then unfortunately, there's a lot of truths that are also deterrents. And so like I have done, I still do ride alongs with police and fire agencies and such just to keep fresh. And I remember on a ride along that I did that they had these myths. They thought that clinicians recorded counseling sessions, uh, I had someone ask me the other day, is anything I say, do you have to report this back to my employer? And I'm like, "Uh, no and no. And so I think those myths about what mental mental health clinicians do is a huge deterrent for people to ask for help.
0: Yeah, I remember somebody saying that they can't go to EAP because they're going to report back to the city what was said so people in law enforcement will not use a eap if they do have to use a clinician they'll go outside or like cash pay won't even go through their insurance because they're afraid that you know the higher-ups are going to find out what they said
1: yeah and you, you cut out but i think i heard um the distrust of eap clinicians the funny thing is depending on the structure of the eap because i'm i'm technically uh an EAP clinician for four different EAP organizations, but I'm a private practitioner. And so I just have a contract with them, but I have, it's a HIPAA, these are HIPAA protected conversations. So it has absolutely nothing to do with the employer whatsoever. Um, It's health information that is protected. uh, So when people have a conversation with me, if, and it's never happened in the eight years I've done, Mental health work, I've never like never had to to uh, breach confidentiality. But if I had to, because someone was imminently in danger to themselves or someone else, it isn't even going to be their employer I would be contacting. It would be someone to get them in emergency care to, to keep them safe. And so there would be no need. My relationship with the employer is non-existent in that case. And I've never had, had to do that. And I think what happens, and I think where the mis- misperception occurs is that there's a confusion between the clinicians that do or con- confusion about the clinicians that do fitness for duty evaluations or pre-employment evaluations and those of us that do support services. We, I, you're on one side of the fence or the other. And so if anybody ever s- saw me as a support person, which that's all I do, um, there is no way ethically, uh, morally, uh, anything like that, that I would ever be called upon to be do- doing a fitness for duty evaluation or pre-employment or anything like that. I won't do it. I even tell mm-hmm. agencies, if you send someone to me for an individual debriefing, and then you later determine through your own like sources or whatever that you want to do a fitness for duty evaluation, Ask somebody else because it's not coming from me.
0: Well, that's good to know that you clear, clear up those lines a little bit. <laughs> right.
1: But I think these are the kinds of things that are confusing for first responders is they don't understand. They just, they just see this global term, mental health person, and they associate it with the person that uh, did a fitness for duty evaluation or that did a pre-employment. And those are different people than the ones that do support.
0: Well, that's very good to know. I think that helps clear things up a lot because it's uh, what I've heard routinely in my line of work. So, What about burnout? Because when I read the excerpt from the book, I was highly intrigued by your perspective on burnout and PTSD and other mental health challenges about them being inevitable or avoidable. Yeah, I don't
1: think it's a good expectation to set to say, it's inevitable these things are going to get you. Um, I, think, I think that's the wrong message to send. And I think that these are certainly things to think about. And these are certainly things to um, make, plan- again, make assessments, make decisions, uh, take steps to address Trauma that you've ex- been exposed to, which is, you know, the PTS, the post traumatic stress, or to address the chronic stressors and demands being put on you, which is the burnout. But I don't think it makes sense to say these are inevitable because I think that that sets people up to believe, um, or to be discouraged from even doing anything about it because they're like, well, why bother? It's going to get me anyway. That's what the job does. And I remember hearing those messages where when I started and other people have heard these messages as well, when they've started in this line of work, expect that you're going to get divorced, expect that you're going to lose friends, expect that you're going to start hating the public, expect that this is going to happen. And I think that is a huge disservice to people to tell them to expect um, all those things to happen. Because the reality of it is, is my husband and I have been together happily married, and we've been together 20 years this summer. And as have two other couple friends of mine, both that are police uh, as well, have also been together for 20 years. And none of us are having affairs. And everybody's still in love and has great marriages. Not to say that they don't have their challenges, but I don't think it's it makes sense to say these things are inevitable.
0: Well, and congratulations on being married for twenty Thank years. Thank you. And everybody has their challenges too. So I think that that's an unrealistic expectation that everything's going to be fine and dandy and rosy, whether you're public safety or not.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think <laughs> that again, I think it's. I don't think that it's a good idea when someone's hired to say. Oh, you're going to love this place, and to sugarcoat things, and there's everybody's so supportive, and you know we'll always, you know, look out for each other because that's not true either. Uh, Unfortunately, not everybody looks out for each other in in this line of work. Um, But I think it's something to say you will, uh, you will face challenges. You will, uh, you will likely uh, have to reconsider. Certain people that you spend time with or shift work will make it difficult to spend time with people that you still want to spend time with. Um, But to set the expectation that will be a challenge, but set the expectation that they can persevere if they really are thoughtful about it and deliberate about it.
0: And it is a noble profession and it's Mm -hmm. a important, important profession. So the nobility and the satisfaction that one will get out of the job should outweigh the potential challenges. But I do think that it's important to be honest about it up front too. Mm-hmm. Right. And just
1: even the, the research from, from d- military deployments, they say, okay, if we're going to, you know, offer support to these people after a deployment, you know, they said, is it, is it the proximity of the support services? You know, how, how close to the battlefield is it that the, the immediacy of it—that's important. You know, how soon after, or is it the expectation that they'll get better and that the the support will work? And it's by and large, it's the expectation that the people will will move through whatever it is that they're challenged by was the most important factor. Um, so again, it's not it's not sugarcoating things, but but rather being realistic about it rather than pessimistic about it. I like I
0: like that contrast: mm-hmm. realistic versus pessimistic. Yeah,
1: yeah. Because I'm not, so I'm to it. I'm sorry, because oh, yeah, sorry. I'm not. I'm not promoting posit positivity either. I'm I'm promoting realism.
0: Oh, well, people look at you. You're crazy if you're like, this is the best job <laughs> ever. You're gonna <laughs> love it so much, and you're gonna get so much sleep, and your family's gonna love you, mm-hmm. and the public's gonna love you. Right? That's not how it happens all the time, unfortunately. No. But onto a heavier topic. It's one that is near and dear to my heart, and that we talk about a lot. It just has kind of wound up being a big theme on our show is suicide and suicide prevention. But today I want to talk about what can be done or what can we do about what seems to be the epidemic of first responder suicide, not only the police, but also firefighters, EMTs, dispatchers. It seems like we're hearing about a new death every day. And does it seem like the rate is increasing or are we're just more aware of it because we're talking about it more? I don't know if it's because I've thought of that
1: a lot. I don't know. And I don't know how you would measure that if it is that we're talking about it more, um, that we're more aware of it versus it occurring more. I'm inclined to think just because of the morale of uh, the, of many police agencies and fire agencies that it is. I'm inclined to think that it is occurring more, not just merely that we're talking about it more and It is catastrophic because when I looked, I think it was yesterday, it was 57 police officers had had killed themselves since January 1st, some of which are doing it on the job, many of which are doing it on the job, which is a message, or it's my interpretation that that is a message. And so... In response, and I'm actually going to a police suicide symposium here in a couple of days at NYPD, where Mm. 300 people from around the nation are coming together to talk about what do we do. And so I'm very privileged to be able to be part of that conversation. So my thoughts prior to going to that important event in a couple of days is that I think what we need to be doing about it is we need to be shifting to a proactive support for first responders ra- rather than a reactive. Historically, we have been more based on the critical incident stress management, so once a critical event has occurred, either professionally because they have a call they've gone to or uh, personally because a person has gotten into some kind of legal trouble or has lost a family member or something else, then we step up and say, "Oh, what well, what can we do for you? What do we need to do?" and these kinds of things. And I think that's um and I participate in those critical incident stress debriefings and those kinds of things. But I think that is, we really need to be ahead of, of these things. We really need to 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 be promoting resilience building from the get-go, From and I call it from hire to retire, and not just at times when it seems the most needed, because typically by then someone's book of the dead or trunk of traumas or however you want to word it has built up so much that this is just one of about you know two dozen that have built up in this person's background in their personal or professional history. and i th- I think you've really got to get to people early and talk to them about caring for themselves, talk to them about not blaming themselves for things happening that they don't have control over, helping them build uh, and repair support systems that have started to falter because the wear and tear of the job has started to affect their relationships. I've had many trainings that I have done where people have come up to me afterwards and have said, again, it's kind of the same thing I said with the other person, I wish that I had known this before. But very specifically, people will say, I wish that I had known this before because I could have helped my friend uh, that took his life. Um, and because these were the things that I saw and we didn't say anything because I did we didn't know what to say or what to do. And so we didn't.
0: Do you feel that peer support or unofficial peer support training could be key in helping prevent first responder suicide? Absolutely. In fact, that's, that's a large part of what I do
1: is build peer teams, talk to peers about having conversations about suicide. and. And a very wise chaplain said uh, in some training I attended, care enough to hurt their feelings, uh, Care enough to say something if you see they have changed. And because some people, and I've had some peer supporters that I have worked with who have said, "Oh, well, our job is is really to just kind of be there if someone needs something. They they uh, know we're there, not to to." you know, intrude or be, you know, kind of force support on them. And I called BS on that. And I said, no, your job, like if you see someone is not doing well, you don't just wait because you don't want to be intrusive and say, well, gosh, I hope they say something to me. You instead go to them and express care and concern, care enough to hurt their feelings to let them know that their change has been seen, that their pain is not invisible. You've really got to get your head wrapped around that it's okay to, I won't say confront these people, but express your concern for these people because they may not know it's even visible to other people, or they may not even realize that they're heading that way themselves until they're in too deep.
0: And it just might be enough just to open up a dialogue Mm -hmm. to show somebody that you're interested in caring and value what they have to say as a person, that just might be enough too. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And I tell them, I said, sometimes if you go and you say, Hey, Bob, I see that you're not been yourself lately. And I've always looked up to you. And, you know, I, I saw you on this call, and that's not your normal self, and what's what's going on? And I tell them, use presumptive language, because if you ask, how are you doing, they're going to, they're most likely going to say fine, or okay, or tired. It's too presumptive, and you, you've kind of overstepped, you know, when you note what it is you see about them that's different and ask what's going on. If they say nothing's going on, why are you in my face about it? Then you can say, well, you know, that just didn't seem like you, so I didn't want to not check in with you because again i care about your respect you or you know we got to take care of each other and i hope you're right i hope that you that you are doing fine but if you determine you're not you know circle back let me know happy to talk to you i tell them you'd be surprised someone who, who who's asked could be taken off guard by the question could circle back and say you know what you surprised me when you noticed that or you said that and the 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 truth of it is, is yeah, I'm struggling, and I think I, th- I, think again, we owe it to each other to, if we see something that's going on with the person, to say something to them, let them know they're they're seen.
0: Is it ever okay to just come out and ask someone if they're suicidal?
1: Every time you think that's possible, it's it's absolutely the best idea, and I have done that in my office. I have ha- done that, you know, when I've done. Uh, victim service work, or when I was a police officer, absolutely, and, and not to be even bashful about it. Don't if you're shameful or bashful or about it, it just puts shame on them. And so, not that I'm going to say, "Oh, well, that seems like a good idea to me." Are you suicidal? But rather, it seems like you're in so much pain that would feel like a reprieve from your suffering. And so, it doesn't mean it's an acceptable out, but it I can understand how you'd be desperate to get out of that pain.
0: Yeah, you're not suggesting that they do it. You're not condoning it. But I think that shock of having someone in your face saying, are you suicidal might just be enough to snap somebody out of something and and really question, Mm -hmm. what am I doing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So switching gears a little bit, what do you think places more stress on a person being involved in a traumatic event on duty or the political and admin crap that goes on in the workplace?
1: We know that it's the administrative stuff. It's the meaning, the organizational betrayal, to put it more directly, that is harder for an individual, a first responder to deal with than the trauma. And the reason there's many reasons for this. One is that who in the academy is given a course on dealing with organizational betrayal and what that looks like and what to do and who to contact when that happens nobody. Nobody's get, getting that kind of training or preparation in the academy. I can't even imagine having a course. We're going to have a two-hour block on organizational betrayal today. Um,
0: <laughs> this is how we're going to scream. <laughs> right.
1: I, I can't imagine academies uh, incorporating that into their curriculum. And so, people don't talk about it. And so, when it happens, it's so shocking for people because they don't expect it to to occur. And because they don't expect it to occur, they don't know what to do about it. They don't know how they can't prepare for it. And a friend of mine at the RCMP said, you know, uh, he's a clinician as well said, you know, there's a plate in the front the bad guy and a plate in the back for the administration. It's, it's something that I think is, because I've had, and I'll speak in generalities uh, about this client, I had a client that was traumatized by something horrific he saw on the job, and we worked through that using EMDR, uh, but the bigger uh, trauma, uh, the, 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 the harder domino to knock down was the organizational betrayal because they blamed him for his PTSD, And that was brutal. That took a lot more time to actually work through because he had internalized some of the blame that they were putting on him and started to kind of question his capacity and his worth and was actually quite suicidal before he came in to see me based upon that organizational betrayal.
0: So an organizational betrayal is, can you give some examples?
1: Um, Well, the clear example is blaming someone for their post-traumatic stress um, Mm -hmm. response or disorder, whichever one we're talking about. Blaming them for their burnout. Uh, Some of the, uh, and it can come in smaller ways that still kind of creep into the psyche of the individual where a person really puts in their time and works really hard to get a promotion or a specialized assignment and someone else is given it because they're friends with the person that makes that decision. And that can feel like a huge betrayal because then it just kind of deflates them because they're like, well, why did I follow all the the rules and follow all the the, the path towards getting that promotion or assignment and someone else was given it to me when it was you know it's it's unfair and that's a huge one i've known many people that are like i just want to walk away from this department is this is how they treat their employees and then they're also very aware and it's funny because my husband i won't name the department he he was with was (laughs) mandated to him and his all his peers that is were mandated to training on their days off uh, and the training topic was work-life balance And they're like, what? Uh, You're telling us we should spend our days off doing things to recreate and be with our family and we're mandated to this training on our day off to hear that? So that's something like not clicking here. Mm -hmm. And
0: I think that's pretty systematic no matter where
1: you go. Right, right, yeah. So it's, it's the organizational betrayal and it's the organizational hassles as well. And even some of the not organization specific but some of the uh, crap that's in the workplace that's not necessarily admin related, but public related. There's, you know, a lot of anti-police, even fire, EMS, anyone that works for the government. um, There's a lot of that sentiment out there. And there can feel like if the admin seems to be acquiescing to to the public, that because of their strong opinions about how everything's policing should look like because of course the public has lots of training and education on that Uh, sarcasm Mm -hmm. uh, there but they can feel quite betrayed by the admin for not saying not educating the public and saying oh, no i know you realize or you 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 recommend rather that we should be doing policing this way or that way but let let me instead of educating the public on what it actually looks like they submit to that because of you know public scrutiny or media scrutiny these kinds of things and so it can feel like a like a double betrayal a betrayal by the public they serve and a betrayal by the admin that submit to those those ridiculous demands
0: yeah, absolutely. I would tell a personal story, but I'm not going to. But. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll talk offline about yeah, that. <laughs> I can,
1: yeah. My, um, I mean, I heard that, like I said, I grew up in a, in a police household. My dad was an administrator and it was very challenging for him to support the the guys and gals with the boots on the ground and appease city council citizens' complaints, that kind of stuff. and. So the administrators themselves are actually very much challenged because they they can't please everyone. And they may even really, really want to please the people that work underneath them. But they have to kind of play the game for the people they answer to, to continue to keep their jobs. And, you know, so I don't envy them either. So I don't want to villainize administrators because... They're, they're, they have a very complicated job trying to, to please everyone, and, and they can't possibly do that.
0: So let's talk a little bit about being a female police officer and your experience, and what are some of the challenges that are unique to being a female in law enforcement? I think
1: it's been, it's, I'm not saying it's not still an issue now, but I know historically it's been much worse than it is now because uh, people have felt quite comfortable historically in saying you have no business being in this job. And I've had, uh, even when I was a police officer, I remember a male coworker saying, Why do women talk so much? And (laughs) <laughs> like and and just really saying other kinds of sexist comments and and you know those kinds of things and so i think you know there's still some of that especially in less progressive departments and so there's there's that and then for the women themselves uh, the ones i've interviewed either formally or those i've spoken with informally have said they sometimes feel like they're a double failure because they're working so hard to promote and to do good work as officers. But then if they become a parent, they can't put in the hours, they can't put in all the overtime in their work because they would fail as mothers. And so some of them are trying to do both and have said, well, I feel like a double failure because I'm not for, there for my family to the degree that I want to, nor am I there for my fellow officers in my department to the degree I want to, so they feel this double failure frustration with themselves. Unfortunately, still a lot of times, uh, female officers, uh, paramedics, firefighters are still given more maternal roles on some of these calls. Like if a woman is sexually assaulted, it's they're more apt to be the one that's tapped to uh, sit and take the report or take the statements or be present for exams and things like that, women are more apt to be in that role, which subjects them to higher levels of trauma and traumatic stress. And they become, they get to know the person a bit more personally than someone else on the call, who's a little more arm's length uh, from the details of that interpersonal violence. And so that's just, and I, I just even remember that as a as a female officer, they're like, oh, we need a female officer to come to this call for this. And so you end up being with, with people that have experienced sexual violence more. And that's a pretty horrific uh, trauma to be exposed to.
0: Yeah, I can imagine just the vicar- vicarious trauma hearing about all the firsthand violence that happens. And that is interesting that they are put in that role. More often than not,
1: and I don't know that there's a way to get around that because, uh, you know, if a woman experiences sexual violence, she probably would prefer to have the female officer or the female paramedic or firefighter there with her than the male. And so I don't I don't know how to how to do anything different with that other than to just be aware that that particular first responder, female first responder, may need additional support to try to get through or get past that,
0: that call. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So let's talk dispatch because that is near and dear to my heart because I am one Mm -hmm. and I'm a a supervisor. So in your experience, having all of these different roles, including dispatch, what is unique about our role in mental health?
1: Well, I think dispatch and so unfortunately, get left out of so many aspects of mental health training, of mental health support, of any kind, you know, being involved in debriefings, these kinds of things. I was at a debriefing the other day and a, a, a very senior dispatcher had been there a uh, like a twenty-something years had said, well, this is the first time I've been included in one of these. So they're just kind of these forgotten people because they're they're on the other side of the radio, and so and it's not uncommon when I go to debriefings that that the dispatchers are either forgotten altogether or they're so pleased that they were remembered to be included, which is sort of terrible, uh, as well as they're. When I've done training, I've had people write in the evals, this is the first time dispatchers saying this is this is the first time my experience has been included in discussions of trauma, because there's there's this diminishment of the level of trauma that they actually experience because they don't see things, which is BS. Because even in my days as a a dispatcher, I know that I knew the officer, so I would picture them on the scene. I might even know the, 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 the location, the intersection, the business, that kind of stuff. So, all the while, you're either taking the call or dispatching it, you're picturing it. It's in your mind's eye uh, when you are hearing this person, you know, screaming about their dying child or these kinds of things, you're picturing it. and and I don't think people think about that. They're the first first responder. And so I don't think that they get the support that they need. I think that the working conditions that they're often subjected to are are not in their best, interest because they're in typically in tight quarters and dark, noisy uh, dispatch centers that are just overstimulating in many respects with all the 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 lights and the beeps and the tones and this kind of stuff. And they don't get a break once they have a traumatic call. They don't get to then, you know, drive to back to the station and and, you know write the report and have a coffee and, and, and breathe. They pick up the next call or they pick up the next radio traffic. And so it's relentless what what you all have to deal with.
0: It's getting better. But yes, we have historically been the forgotten stepchild of first responders and law enforcement. So thank you for your observations and your insight onto that because kind of sucks. <laughs>
1: well, it definitely sucks. And I think the other thing that dispatchers, all, all the ones I've known, because I'm, I'm connected with uh, a local dispatch center, is that they assume responsibility for the safety of everyone on the other side of the radio. And I have to one by one, or sometimes categorically inform them, you are not responsible for, for those people going home safe, you, are, you need to rethink how you define success in your work. You are responsible for giving them all the information that you have available to you that you're able to glean from callers that may or may not be cooperative, from radio traffic, which may or may not be clear or coherent or accurate in terms of people's location, those kinds of things. And it is your job to make sure they have all that information. And what happens out on the street on the call is oftentimes not in your control it is it's the officers to a small degree the firefighter to a small degree and then all the other people that are there everybody there is sharing control of what's happening and you cannot define your success by someone going home safe because that is that's going to not turn out really well if someone doesn't go home safe you you can't hold yourself responsible for things you you couldn't change.
0: So what can we do to manage all this? Is there any other tips or tricks or advice you can give to us that we haven't talked about yet? I think it's important that
1: managing all this is about looking into those three things that that I mentioned, which is looking, you know, really assessing your health, again, spiritual health, uh, physical health, emotional health, and asking yourself, what one thing can I do this week to improve one of those categories and the next week pick another and keep going and keep going uh what one thing can i do to shift my mindset to be more resilient to to be more realistic rather than pessimistic and what one thing can i do to enrich my relationships with 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 certain people i think and as as you've said, there's no one size fits all, but rather each person has to make those assessments and make those those decisions and, and take those actions. So I think that's part of it. But then I think even still similar or kind of an extension of the relationship piece is I think departments and individuals and departments really need to work towards proactive support of each other rather than reactive support of each other and I think that's one of my strongest recommendations is it's a lot easier to help a person when they're a little bit off the path than it is to get them back uh, on the path when they're so far from it uh, they can't even see the
0: path. So how can listeners get a hold of you and where can they buy that book?
1: You can get all my contact information on my website which is first responder and first is spelled out. And so it's responder psych Firstresponderspsych at gmail.com is my email address. The book, uh, you can get it on Amazon. If uh, you would like, you can actually download chapter one from my website. At the very top, it says click here for a preview and it gives you chapter one and snippets of additional chapters so that you can get a sense of, uh, would this be something that would pique your interest? If departments or people that are buyers for departments are interested in, purchasing purchasing more than just a handful. They might benefit from contacting the publisher, Routledge Publishing, and they can actually typically buy in bulk from them and uh, they'll give them discounts and tax stuff and those kinds of things that they don't tell me what the, do- the dollar amounts are. But but I think that information is also on my website. But if not, email me and I can, I can connect them with those phone numbers and emails.
0: Yes, absolutely. Go to the Zon right now. And buy the book, because it will change your way of thinking about stress and trauma and, you know, your body armor, because we, officers wear body armor to protect themselves, but there's no brain armor. You have to make that yourself.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's, you know, we spend a lot of money on uh, training. We spend a lot of money on, you know, going to the range and we spend a lot of time doing those things, but we really are more apt to be using our brain than we will be using any other tool we have, and so and and our health relies on us um, having a healthy brain and a healthy healthy practices for a healthy body. So,
0: well, do you have any closing thoughts for us before we say goodbye?
1: No, again, I'm just very thankful for having the opportunity, and I really hope that that this will be an ongoing conversation around building resilience. And yeah, and I, I just hope that the listeners choose to be resilient every
0: day. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining us. I'm grateful that you were here and we will definitely see you in the future. Hopefully, maybe you'll come back and we'll we'll talk about a different topic.
1: Sounds great. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. And I hope that you found something that really resonates with you. I can't wait to share even more So please subscribe to the podcast and you can find links to our resources in the description and at youroxygenmaskfirst.com.